How God is indeed great. Amen? Amen. That's a wonderful song. Well, as I so often do, I want to start off with a question for everyone this morning. The question is this, what are you thirsting for? What are you thirsting for? Christian or non-Christian, every single solitary human being seeks for something with their lives. History has been shaped by this, and more importantly, the human experience would be meaningless without it. So let me ask you again. What are you thirsting for? You're all thirsting for something. You all brought those thirsts in here this morning with you. It's something that you can't shake. What are you thirsting for? This thirsting might be something healthy, but it could be something unhealthy as well. So, for instance, some of you may thirst for prestige in business or networks. Maybe for others of you here this morning, you thirst for success. You're driven in everything you do by some inner drive to prove that you're the best at whatever it is you set yourself to do. Maybe for others of you, what you thirst for is wealth and riches and the stability that brings. Still others of you here this morning, perhaps you thirst for close personal relationships. Finally, a close personal relationship that won't let you down like the others in the past have. Still others of you here this morning may really thirst and long for a good, godly individual to become your spouse. If you're younger here this morning, perhaps you long to be viewed as popular and attractive. Perhaps you thirst for a good college to be accepted into and all that that will bring later in life. Or maybe most of you here this morning, you thirst for something very simple, and that is a safe, healthy, and prosperous family that lives to glorify the Lord and that each member in that family serves the Lord with all their heart, soul, and mind in whatever their calling may be. Now, the, tra the tragedy is that anything within this physical world can only temporarily quell our thirst. That's where the unhealthy element comes in. We find unhealthy temporary things in this earth to quench our thirst. We've all learned the harsh reality that whenever we find something that temporarily satisfies our thirst, that in the long run it proves to leave us disappointed. However, this, this reality that whatever we thirst for, we go from one thing to another to another to another throughout the span of our lives, this reality should point to one eternal truth. What we're really thirsting for can only be satisfied by the transcendent. What we're really thirsting for in each and every physical, temporal thirst we have in this world really all points to the fact that we thirst for the transcendent and can only be satisfied when we find that connection. Now, as I was preparing for the sermon, I was doing some research in a very odd location, extreme sports. 
Now you're probably wondering what extreme sports and Isaiah 55 have in common. And it's the, the shared connection of trying to find an experience outside of you to, to, to get some sort of satisfaction. It's always intrigued me that the extreme sport phenomenon promised and really found its root in, in a very large demographic of people yearning for something more that no other experience could find. So they would do the most daring, life-risking things to find that or to quench that thirst within them. As I was preparing for this sermon, I was actually reading a, someone's Ph.D. dissertation entitled Extreme Dude, A Phenomenological Perspective on the Extreme Sport Experience. And the author of that said pretty much the same thing. And by the way, he defines, and perhaps a little humorous, he defines an extreme sport as anything while the slightest miscalculation would result most likely in death rather than injury. So you see the degree to which people would subject, subject themselves to for the sake of quenching this inner thirst that they have. And in it, this individual said this, the potential of various extraordinary human experiences, many of which parallel those found in activities such as meditation, was an important part of the extreme sport experience. Again, this inner thirst for something more is part and parcel of the human experience. You can't shake it. You can't get rid of it. So what are you thirsting for today? Each and every one of you have brought those thirsts in here this morning. Again, healthy, unhealthy, whatever they may be, you have them with you. And I want to invite you all to follow along in this sermon because I think you'll find the answer to what you're looking for. Turn with me now to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 55. I'll give you just a moment to turn there. Again, Isaiah chapter 55. We'll be reading all 13 verses this morning. Most of you should be, uh, be there by now. Again, Isaiah chapter 55. Follow along with me beginning in verse 1 as I read all 13 verses for us. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And you labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. I'm sorry, I... Verse 3, incline your ear, come to me, and hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. 
because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are, for as, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we all confessed we thirst. Father, we pray that today you would come and quench our thirst. Be with us as we open up your word. We pray that you would be among us, working in us, so that as we leave here, we find our thirst quenched. We find ourselves uh, encouraged and haven't been fed from our great shepherd. Father, fill me with your spirit to preach your word. In Christ's name, amen. The title of today's sermon, The Free Grace of Our Missionary God. The Free Grace of Our Missionary God. From these verses we've just read, we're going to look at three points today. Number one, the prerequisite to God's free grace. The prerequisite to God's free grace. Number two, the benefit of God's free grace. Again, the benefit of God's free grace. And then third, the route to God's free grace. So what we have is the prerequisite, benefit, and route. Now we'll start with the first, the prerequisite to God's free grace. There are at least two important things we should not miss in the first two verses of Isaiah chapter 55. And they are very simply, one, God is holding out an invitation for you. God is holding out an invitation for all of us. And second, we need to know, or excuse me, we must know our need in order to act on that invitation. So God is holding out an invitation for us, and we must know our need in order to accept that invitation. Or... To state it another way, the first two verses we have a command repeated four times and that command is the invitation to come. Those 
That fourfold command is then followed by a question designed to get us to better understand our need to accept what's being offered. Let's look at the first of these, the, the invitation. Four times in the first verse alone, we're invited to come. It should encourage each and every one of us that we have an inviting God. God is inviting us to come to Him. He makes Himself known in His creation. We see that preeminently beginning all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, where God, in and of His own initiative, makes Himself known to His creation. He seeks out for Himself a people to call His own, or to say it another way, God is a missionary God. God is a missionary God. He wants to share His glory with a special people that He's calling to Himself, through the act of missions and evangelism that we take part in. What great news that is for us, the lost and sin-sick in this world, who go from one location to another location to another location to find, to, to constantly attempt to quench that thirst, only to be left empty. God is holding out something much greater for us in this invitation. God is gracious and merciful, and He's reached out to us while we were His enemies and unable to respond. He reaches out to His enemy and holds out this invitation to come and receive real life. As the psalmist put it in Psalm 101, He's rescued us from the pit and has crowned us with loving kindness. Again, Psalm 101, He has rescued us from the pit and crowned us with loving kindness. Without God first seeking after us, without God inviting us, we would never be able to come to Him. We would be lost in an endless pattern of going to these temporal sources to, to quench our thirst, one after the other, after the other, after the other, never finding any true satisfaction if it were not for the truth that God is an inviting God, a missionary God who seeks after us and who desires to bring together a special people to reveal himself to. So God is gracious and compassionate and seeking after those that are lost, <clears throat> excuse me, that are lost in this world. And it's that principle, that character of God that is gracious and compassionate that's really at the heart of the Christian religion, and it's that that sets it apart from any other system of faith that's works-based. What we have here is God, a missionary God, who seeks for himself a people. We can bring nothing to this transaction. He holds out the invitation. We can accept that invitation, but we bring nothing other to it than that. He sets the initiative. It's only because he is the seeking God that we hope or that we can hope to have any fellowship in Him whatsoever. We have nothing to present to God as our own righteousness. Now, uh, the second sub-point from the text, we have to know our need. We have to know our need in order to act upon this invitation. If you don't know that you're thirsting, then you're not going to seek something to quench that thirst, are you? In other words, those who are invited must realize that they are thirsting for something greater than themselves and that in accepting that invitation, there, there's nothing, again, that, that you can bring to it. 
he holds out this invitation to have your thirst quenched and to receive real life. If you're here today, more than anything else, you need to have someone to love you enough to explain the harsh reality that whatever these empty cisterns are that we go to in this life, whatever these sources of of fulfillment uh, that we seek, ultimately they're going to do us no good. We, We already know this by experience. Whether it's the empty cistern of prosperity or happiness or whatever it might be, you're settling for something that in the end will still leave you thirsting. Our thirst for human excuse me, our thirst as human beings for the transcendent is easily seen today as most Americans will quickly respond that they believe in God and that they regard themselves as a practicing spiritual human being to some degree or another. That in and of itself, though it's not at all a profession of orthodox Christian belief, that in and of itself shows that it's part and parcel of the human experience to yearn for the transcendent, to yearn for something outside of us, something beyond us, something, something greater. So in our personal evangelism, we should seek to build a bridge to the unbeliever by understanding that every single person Every single person has this inner desire, this thirst. This reality that everyone at some point thirsts for the transcendent was brought home to me with great clarity recently as I had the opportunity to sit by the hospital bed of a gentleman who spent his whole life seeking fame and fortune. And this particular gentleman found it. You see, this gentleman had set out to be a successful businessman and became just that. He made millions and lived the type of life that his riches enabled him to live. Now, as a result of his efforts in business and the success that that brought, he never had time for God. What he thirsted for, what he longed for, he was going to his business and his success to placate that thirst. So this guy, this gentleman, again, never had time for God. He was very pluralistic in his thinking. Everybody's okay, you're okay, I'm okay. We all find our own paths to God. We don't really need to address it. God's a kindly grandfather. We'll be just fine when we get there. Well, now the problem is this. This gentleman advanced in years and his health broken. He's in the hospital. And I found myself by his bedside, and for hours he's pouring himself out to me about how, at this advanced stage in his life, where he should really now finally be enjoying the rewards of his business success, he's just filled with disappointment. Filled with disappointment about what his drive and thirst for business success and wealth did to his family filled with disappointment that though he could be on the top of his game, he's now in a hospital bed, just like any of us would be. So we spoke for hours about God and what God requires of him and how God was using his health to teach him that while he may have found many things to satisfy his longings along the way, the mistake he was making was this was a place that only God can fill. 
This man longed for something greater than this physical world can satisfy. Again, I've repeated that several times. You'll hear it throughout this sermon because it is a reality of being a human being. If you have a heartbeat and two legs, you long for something and something greater than you and something that only the transcendent will fulfill. This is nothing new. The great early church bishop, St. Augustine, to whom we owe much to, St. Augustine, his life spanned the 4th and 5th centuries, originally from North Africa, was a great early proponent of the Christian faith and saved the Christian faith in its early days from, from many heresies. He fought the good fight. And now, throughout the ages and down to today, we have many of his books. And one of his very most important books, a very a personal book, simply entitled Confessions, St. Augustine said this, with reference to God. You, God, have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. Again, you, God, have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Well, many centuries later, the great mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal, the Frenchman, said something very similar when he said this, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing but God alone, the Creator made known through Jesus. Again, Blaise Pascal. There's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. And these two men and this gentleman in the hospital, they're not the first to, to recognize this or to give testimony to this. Listen to the way King Solomon said this in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 18. God has set eternity in man's heart. God has set eternity in man's heart. Now, if you're here today, You must acknowledge first that your inner thirst ultimately points to something greater than you, something, something outside of you, and you're not going to find the fulfillment for that thirst in anything in this world. In other words, it's placed there by God. That inner longing is that God-shaped vacuum in your heart crying out for something greater. And you need to come and you need to receive this free invitation being held out for you for real life. And the good news is this. You don't need to bring anything to this. It is a free gift, a free invitation. Just as if you were in a desert trying to find an oasis. You're on the edge of your life. You finally find that oasis of life to get a drink of water. You barely make it there. You are utterly dependent on that person to hold out that cup, or if it's a well, to hold out that cup and to pour you a drink of water. Without that person to hold out that water, you're dead. That's what God is doing for us through Christ in Isaiah chapter 55. Well, in verses 1 and 2, 
we were looking at, one, God holds out an invitation, and two, to accept the invitation, you have to know you have a need, otherwise there's no sense in accepting it, right? You're just, just like any other invitation, you're, you stick it in the back drawer, ignore it, it'll be there for a while, you probably stumble across it some other time. No, that's not what we're supposed to do with this sort of an invitation. That was point number one. Point number two, the benefit of God's free grace. Again, the benefit of God's free grace. Beginning in the second half of verse 2, the text says this, Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear to me and come to me here, why? That your soul may live. The entire problem we have as human beings, as sinners, fallen from God's grace, enemies of God, is that whatever we find to quench our thirst in this life ultimately does not give life to our souls. But we see in verse 2 the benefit of God's grace. We're to eat what is good and we're to delight, delight ourselves in rich food. So, and I'm looking at the second part of, of verse 2 to verse 5. In other words, the second part of verse 2 to verse 5 is the result of the person in verses 1 and 2. In other words, there's an invitation held out to you. You see the need, you take it, you leave those empty cisterns, and you begin to eat what is good and to delight yourself in something you've never found before. So, to put this another way, verses 2, the second half of verse 2 is where I'm at, to verse 5, extend this thought in verses 1 and 2 a little bit further. Okay? And it's in this thought being extended that we get a glimpse of the benefit of God's grace. In other words, you go from being parched and empty and thirsty to being fulfilled and eating what is good and receiving life for your soul. One of the most difficult truths in this life that we must wrestle with, and anyone here that's young enough, you're below college age or, or whatever, you, you need to come to understand this, this following point. It's this, that before we come to Jesus Christ, in personal repentance and faith, our entire life journey is spent on quests that will ultimately leave us bitter and disappointed. Before we come to Jesus Christ, every single quest, whatever quest we thought would bring us satisfaction at some later point in life, it's going to leave us empty and disappointed. That's exactly what the gentleman in, in the hospital room was pouring himself out to me, saying when I was by his bedside. Now, though at the outset that search seems well worth it, and the journey seems manageable, there's no pot of gold at the end of that rainbow, is there? If you're here today and you're carrying around with you any disappointment and bitterness due to some set of circumstances in your life, then this invitation is for you. Listen again, this is the way God holds it out for you in verse 2. In other words, there's an exchange that takes place. Listen diligently to me, and listen, no pun intended, listen to the threefold 
progression here. You have listen, incline, and hear. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. So God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the God who initiates a relationship with us, covenants together to do you good. Makes a covenant with you. Makes a promise with you, for you, to you. So what we have promised is that this hungering and thirsting and the way we spend our energies on these things, they have no real benefit. But if we turn and listen to God, He will satisfy our need. Now, if we incline our ear and listen and come to God, we receive life. Our souls will live. So rather than going through life in this physical world, parched and dry and embittered by failure and disappointment, we will thrive. Now, what a testimony in a platform for evangelism that that becomes for the believer. When you accept this invitation, you then go through this world that is parched and dried and leaving everyone empty. You go through thriving. You have real life. What a testimony that then becomes. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, put it this way. In John 10, verse 10, he says this, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So what's being promised here in Isaiah 55 is the type of life that we were each meant originally to experience in God's creation. It's held out for us again because of Jesus Christ. So when we come to God in saving faith, He covenants to do us good. We are literally, as part of that covenant, when God makes that covenant for us, we are grafted in, literally grafted into the family of God, and we receive an inheritance as God's children. Remember that verse from Psalm 101 we referenced earlier. We are literally crowned with His loving kindness. Now the task of missions and evangelism then become a direct overflow of the character of God. Again, the task of missions and evangelism are a direct overflow of the fact that God is a missionary God seeking to invite people to Himself. God is gracious and merciful. He makes Himself known to His creation. So, the task of missions and evangelism then for the believer becomes redeemed sinners who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Redeemed sinners going out on mission with God, taking this good news of an invitation, taking, taking this good news out, that God will quench your thirst, that God will give real life. We take this good news out to other lost sinners and invite them into the family of God. John Piper, in his little book on missions called Let the Nations Be Glad, 
says of missions and evangelism that missions and evangelism exist because worship does not. Mission and evangelism, excuse me, mission and evangelism exist because worship of God does not. And the reason why the worship of God does not exist, and at this point this is me, not John Piper, the reason why the worship of God does not exist in this world is because of the problem of Isaiah chapter 55. We find other things to quench our thirst. We're lost in our sins and we will never come to God on our own. We'll always look to this world for the answer. So that's the prerequisite to the free grace of God, the benefit of the free grace of God. Now third, the route to free grace, excuse me, the route to God's free grace. The route to God's free grace. In other words, how do you come, how do you receive this free grace? In chapters 6 to the end of the chapters, excuse me, verses 6 to 13. And let's read it again. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are, than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish what I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So these remaining verses particularly in verse 6, what we have is the command to now seek, to seek, to call upon Him. So it's through this seeking and calling, calling out to the Lord that one receives this invitation, this free grace that's being offered. Salvation for all people throughout all times is the same way. It's seeking the Lord, it's calling out to Him, it's repentance and faith. Verse 7 function to help us unpack verse 6 a little bit more. In other words, verse 7 describes what the seeking and the calling upon Him in verse 6 is supposed to look like. And again, what we have here is repentance and faith. To receive this invitation of new life, it comes through repentance and faith. Without repentance and faith, no one comes to God. And notice that there's a condition placed here, by the way, in verse 6, the two commands in verse 6 that would seek and call, there's a condition placed on each one of those. (coughs) While he may be found and while he is near. This invitation is not held out to us always. We cannot 
take this invitation lightly. Again, we can't tuck it away in a drawer and forget about it for a time and stumble across it later and think that invitation is still going to be there for us. God initiates how we come to him. And he says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. This invitation is not open-ended. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament puts it similarly when he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. I'll read it for you. And by the way, in 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul is actually quoting from the book of Isaiah and then expands on it when he says this, Working together with him, the him is Christ, working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he, that is Christ, says, and here's the quote from Isaiah 49, verse 8, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. So that's the quote from Isaiah 49 that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 6. Paul then expands on that and says this, and interprets it this way. Behold, now is a favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Don't put off the invitation. Don't put off what is being held out. Now is the day of salvation. We're not to put off making our decision for Christ. If you're in here today and you're tired of going from place to place in this world, of never finding any real fulfillment, real satisfaction for that inner thirst you need, then it could be you have not found, you have not filled that God-shaped vacuum in your heart by repenting and believing and accepting Christ as your Lord and Savior. Now is the time to do that, the Apostle Paul says. We don't know what a day is going to bring. We're very short-lived, temporal people made from the dust. We don't know what a day will bring. This, this offer of salvation is not to be put off. By the way, notice what the end result is of the one who seeks God and calls upon God. If you're here today and you're hungering, you're thirsting, you can barely carry on. Look at what the end result is. If you seek God, if you call upon Him, verse 7 then says that you will receive His compassion and He will pardon you. This is our God. He is a compassionate God. He is a merciful God calling out to sinners, inviting sinners to come to Him, receive His pardon. Now that pardon obviously implies one tough truth we're going to have to understand to accept that compassion. We do need to be pardoned from something. Being, receiving a pardon means you need to be pardoned from something. And that's your entanglement to sin. It is the sinful nature. It is the, the death because of the first Adam that we have inherited because of sin. We do, in fact, come into this world as enemies of God and need to be pardoned from that in Christ. Now, just because God holds out this pardoning compassion to the sinner doesn't mean that he does so quickly or, or cheaply. It's because of the work of Christ that this invitation can be held out. Just because something is free doesn't mean that it has no price, that it's cheap. There is a prerequisite to, to be met. Now, fortunately, in the gospel, the prerequisite has been met by Christ. 
Diedrich Bonhoeffer, uh, a German Christian who lived actually during the, uh, in Germany during the reign of the Nazis, was a very influential Christian under the Nazi regime. And just very interestingly, uh, he was a German Christian jailed for being a leader of, of the confessing church as it was known in Germany. And very interestingly, he was put to death in his concentration camp the day before that very camp was liberated by the Allied forces. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a very influential Christian, wrote a very good book that I'd recommend to all of you called The Cost of Discipleship. And in it, speaking about costly grace, Bonhoeffer says this. This is an excellent quote. I'm just going to read it straight, straight from Bonhoeffer. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought with a price, the scripture says. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon His Son too dear a price to pay for my life and your life. Costly grace is the incarnation of God, he says. We have a free invitation to life being held out for us. It is a costly invitation. Much was paid to hold that invitation out to you and me. Blaise Pascal, who I referenced earlier in, in the sermon, again, a French mathematician and philosopher, towards the end of his life, Pascal is actually best known for a compilation of his thoughts called Pensies, which literally means thoughts. They were just fragmentary thoughts of his that were compiled later after his death. They never made it into book, book or published form. But in his Pensies, Pascal, being a philosopher and a mathematician, made a wager and said this. A person reaps infinite gain in wagering life on God should he exist but experiences no loss if he doesn't. Again, a person reaps infinite gain in wagering life on God should he exist but experiences no loss if he doesn't. On the other hand, a person suffers infinite loss in not wagering on God should he exist yet reaps no real gain if he doesn't. Therefore, Pascal urged, wager on God. God does exist. He is an inviting God. From first to last in the Bible, he reveals himself as a missionary God, a God who is seeking a people to call to himself. He also reveals himself as a God who takes the initiative and speaks to us. And in speaking to us, he's, he's spoken to us preeminently in Christ. 
And because of Christ, we can come to Him and have our thirst quenched. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for this invitation to life that is held out for us in Scripture. We thank You that through the inspired prophet Isaiah, You have this text for us. And that we can find true refreshment as we come to saving faith in Christ. And once we are believers, we can come and be refreshed daily and repeatedly in your presence. Father, I pray for those here today who may not know you, who may still be going to broken cistern after broken cistern in this life. I pray that they would come to an end of themselves and accept this free gift of life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Closing hymn this morning is hymn number 385, I Am Thine, O Lord. And I hope that uh, this morning that you can uh, join with me and others that are here in singing this song and claiming it as your own. And if you can't, I pray that you will seek someone out if you don't know Christ and speak with us this morning. And we'll be glad to speak to you about how you can have a personal relationship with the living Christ. You stand with me and sing with us this today. 385, I am thine, O Lord.
shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day or the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen.